Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 34, Biggest Explosion Ever. My name is George Bartley, and I'm glad you're taking time from your busy schedule to listen to this podcast. Today's Celebrate Poe will concentrate on events in Poe's life in 1815. Later this episode, we'll delve into a disastrous event that took place halfway across the globe from Poe, an event that probably influenced him a great deal, even though it is doubtful that he even knew that it took place. Greetings, Mr. Bartley. Greetings, Mr. Poe. You know, uh, it seems occasionally you might disappear sometimes, as as you might expect from a ghost, but still, you're always here when we need to talk about you. Today, I wanted to talk about your early formal education. Yes, Mr. Bartley. I began my formal education in 1814, and my teacher was either Clotilda or Elizabeth Fisher. And I enjoyed certainly going to White Sulphur Springs in Western Virginia during the summers of 1812, 1813, and 1814. But these vacations paled a comparison to my experiences during my education in Scotland and England during 1815. It was then that the Allens made quite a grand voyage, a transatlantic voyage to be exact. Yes, Mr. Poe, I can imagine you were quite excited at the prospect of being an international traveler when you were still a young boy. That is one way of looking at the situation. First, Paul, or Mr. Allen, disposed of much of the family's furniture and personal effects through auctioneers in Richmond. Mr. Allen intended to set up a branch of his business, Ellis and Allen, in London. Unfortunately, he was not able to do this earlier due to the blockade from the war of 1812. But now that the conflict had come to an end, we were free to cross the Atlantic and conduct business with Great Britain. John and his wife, Frances Allen, Frances's sister, Nancy Ann Valentine, and myself left Norfolk, Virginia on June the 22nd, 1815 on the Lothair. How did Mrs. Allen respond to the voyage? I know trips across the ocean back then could get really rough. Actually, Maul or Francis Allen did not respond well at all to crossing the Atlantic. I personally found it to be quite enjoyable. I was just a small child and thought of the journey almost as an adventure. We eventually crossed the sea and went to visit a spinster sister of Mr. Allen named Mary Allen. She lived in Irvine, Scotland, where Mr. Allen was born. Irvine is a seaport about 23 miles from Glasgow, Scotland. Several other relatives of Mr. Allen also lived in Irvine, including a Mr. James Galt, G-A-L-T. Now, young James Galt was a relative of Mr. Allen's uncle, William Galt. It appeared that young James Galt was able to keep Mr. William Galt informed regarding Mr. Allen's activities in Scotland. Finally, Mr. Allen brought young Galt with him when my family returned home to Virginia five years later. Yes, Mr. Poe, I always confused the two Galts when I was first learning about your life. And uh, we will be talking later extensively about William Galt. 
at least how his actions affected your family. We'll talk about that later in a future podcast. Now, it was in the Irvine burial ground alongside the parish church that all the Allen ancestors were buried. And you might just have gained many of your impressions of a graveyard or cemetery in Scotland. True, that is a a fair assumption, but the first graveyard I probably visited was the graveyard associated with the historic St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond. It was at this church that Mr. Patrick Henry delivered his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. And it was at this church where my dear mother was buried. I must admit that I did have a love for the odd, and I must have enjoyed the rhyming tombstones at the church in Irvine. The grammar school teachers even required us to write out some of the original inscriptions on the tombstones to write these out for our examinations. Now, Mr. Bartley, in our last episode, uh, you remember you mentioned that some of the impressions of various boarding schools while I was a youth may very well have served as source material for the boarding school in my story, William Wilson. This is probably most true of Stoke Newington outside of London, but it could have also be true of the schools I attended in Scotland. Now, at first I attended the grammar school in Irvine, and then the Allens went to Kilmarnock, about seven miles away. However, my father felt it best the following year to move to London. Now, Mr. Bartley, I believe that you are going to talk about Mount Tamburo in Indonesia, and eventually we'll discuss what is often referred to as the year without a summer. I definitely did not know that was occurring in Indonesia during my earthly life, but I have come to realize that the overall global effects may have greatly influenced some of my writings. However, we can discuss that during a later podcast episode. Now, unless you need me any more, Mr. Bartley, for this episode, I will say adieu and farewell. Farewell, Mr. Bartley. Welcome back, and uh, this section of this episode deals with a subject you might not expect on a podcast devoted to Edgar Allan Poe, but uh, when have I ever been one to stick to the subject? Now, when I was doing research for this podcast, I ran across a great chronology of Poe, what he was doing on such and such a date at such and such a time, as well as other events going on in the world at the same time. And in one list, I ran across the year of the eruption of Mount Tamburo in an area now known as Indonesia. I thought, well, that's nice, but I've never heard of Mount Tamburo, and I shelled that away. I've heard of Mount St. Helens and Mount Krakatoa and, of course, Mount Vesuvius, but never Mount Tamburo. Then I started doing more research into what had happened, and it began to hit me. This was an event that really impacted Poe, along with the rest of the world. And Mount Tamburo was more powerful and did more damage than any of the volcanoes I just mentioned. In fact, Mount Tamburo was the most powerful volcanic eruption in recorded history. But more about that later. 
Much of the description of Tambora and its effects in the episode, this episode comes from the excellent The Year Without a Summer by William K. Klingman of the University of Virginia, and I believe it's his son, Nicholas P. Klingman. Now, going back to April the 5th of 1815, for two hours, Mount Tamburo in Indonesia spewed a stream of lava. Mount Tamburo sent a column of ash 18 miles into the sky. Now, imagine a mountain spewing a column of ash 18 miles upwards. Thomas Raffles, the lieutenant governor of Java, heard the blast at his home over 800 miles away. He assumed that it was the sound of distant cannon firing. Other British authorities, assuming that it was the sound of ammunition, actually sent troops to deal with what they thought was an attack. And other local officials believed the sounds from Mount Tamburo were signals from a ship in trouble and sent out rescue boats. On an island almost 250 miles from Mount Tamburo, a ship of the British East India Company believed the sounds were loud guns and spent days trying to find the source with no luck. Now, Britain had just gained control of the area less than four years earlier, and Mount Tamburo was generally believed to be extinct although natives living in the nearby village had reported recent rumblings from deep inside the mountain. Mount Tamburo erupted violently, reaching a violent climax on April the 10th. Lava shot into the air with what looked like a fountain of ash, water, and molten rock shooting in every direction. After an hour, there was so much ash and dust in the atmosphere that darkness covered the mountain top. Hot lava raced down the mountain slope, and this heated the air above it to thousands of degrees. A powerful whirlwind tore trees up by their roots and swept up men, cattle, and horses. Almost every surrounding house was totally flattened. The village of Tamburo completely vanished under a flood of pumice. Lava entered the ocean with a great deal of force, destroying almost all ocean life. Tsunamis were created that were almost 15 feet high, not surprisingly sweeping away everything in their paths. On April the 11th, a European observer in an Indonesian village remarked on a, quote, tremendous motion of the earth distinctly indicated by the tremor of large window frames, another comparatively violent explosion occurring lately in the afternoon. The atmosphere appeared to be loaded with a thick vapor. The sun was rarely visible and only at short intervals appearing very obscurely behind a semi-transparent substance. Now, Thomas Raffles, remember him, the lieutenant governor of Java? Thomas Raffles reported that even at a distance of 800 miles, showers of ashes covered the houses, the streets, and the fields to the depth of several inches, and amid this darkness, explosions were heard at intervals, like the report of artillery or the noise of distant thunder. Now, a little aside, 
Later on in a future episode, Celebrate Poe will cover another man who was also very interested in native lands and became highly respected in the exotic countries he was exploring. The German naturalist and explorer Alexander Van Humboldt, an individual who reminds me of Thomas Raffle. Stick a pin in that name, Von Humboldt. We're coming back to it. Poe dedicated his final completed work to Alexander Van Humboldt with Eureka, and Mr. Humboldt is a fascinating character. Now back to Tamburo. 24 hours after Tamburo erupted, the ash cloud had expanded to cover an area approximately the size of Australia. Air temperatures in the region plunged dramatically, perhaps as much as 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Then a light southeasterly breeze sprang up, and over the next several days, most of the ash cloud drifted over the islands west and northwest of Tamburo. By the time the cloud finally departed, villages within 20 miles of the volcano were covered with ash nearly 40 inches thick. Those 100 miles away found 8 to 10 uh, inches of ash on the ground. Now, remember that even a small quantity of ash can devastate plants and wildlife. So you can imagine what this huge amount of ash would do to all plants, crops, and animals. Before Tamburo erupted, more than 12,000 natives lived near Tamburo. But most of them died from ash falls and pyroclastic flows. They never had a chance. Now, you may ask, what's a pyroclastic flow? Well, according to Mr. Klingman in The Year Without a Summer, pyroclastic flows are rapidly moving streams of liquefied rock and superheated gas at temperatures at almost 538 degrees Celsius. That's uh, 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That would be hot enough to easily melt glass. I can't see how a human could possibly stand a chance. The overall death toll has been estimated anywhere from 70,000 to 100,000, including huge shock waves that swept the islands. They were a major cause of death. Giant waves that destroyed all in their path. And there were many delayed reactions from famine to illness all over the world. Celebrate Poe will deal with some of those effects in future episodes dealing with Tamburo. Delayed reactions from cholera to crop failure that resulted in a significant human cost. And while Mount Tamburo had begun to emit small showers of ash as early as 1814, the earthquake on the night of April the 5th, 1815, was followed by many explosions and a gigantic eruption of ash and smoke that darkened the sky for as much as 300 miles. That's 483 kilometers. Destructive ash fell as far away as 800 miles, almost 1,300 kilometers from the volcano. A very good way to understand just how damaging the 1815 eruption of Mount Tamburo was is to look at its Volcanic Explosivity Index, or VEI. A VEI is a very basic way of determining the strength of a volcanic explosion, now stay with me, and uh, how uh, devastating it is. 
Such a measurement is based on several factors, such as the height of the blast column, the volume of material ejected, and how long the eruption lasts. In other words, the violence of a volcanic eruption. For example, let's compare Tamboro with several other of the more familiar volcanic explosions in history. Scientists rate the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the Mediterranean Sea during the uh, year 79, the explosion that buried Pompeii, as a 5 on the uh, VEI, or Volcanic Explosivity Index. The eruption of Krakatoa in 1883, also in Indonesia, has a VEI of 6. By the way, there was a, a big budget, but rather cheesy movie years ago called Krakatoa East of Java released regarding the volcano's explosion. But it's considered really bad, a very bad movie. I can't say that from a personal experience because I've never seen the movie. I tried to check it out from the Indianapolis Library, and they have everything, even the most obscure foreign movie. So it must be pretty bad. By the way, Krakatoa, east of Java, was ridiculed by the critics for many reasons, kind of like uh, the movie version of Cats, because Krakatoa, in reality, is west of Java. But I digress. Now, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington State was rated a 5 on the VEI scale. And there was the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991 that caused a great deal of damage in the Philippines, and that had only a 6 on the VEI scale. But in all likelihood, the most powerful explosion of all volcanoes in recorded history was the 1815 eruption of Mount Tamburo with a definite 7 on the VEI scale. Now, there was an eruption in 1257, a long time ago, Mount Somalis, also in Indonesia, that some scientists believe was a 7 on the VEA scale, a VEI scale as well. Of course, all these eruptions were noted during recorded history. Scientists also believe there was a far more powerful volcanic eruption, or even several eruptions, that caused a great deal of damage, changed the Earth's surface, and occurred thousands of years before any human being. In fact, even though Mount Tamburo caused a great deal more damage and affected the world's environment to a much larger extent than an eruption such as Mount Krakatoa, we know far more about Krakatoa. News regarding an event occurring in 1815, like Tamburo, might require years to go around the globe, if at all. This would not be the case with an eruption occurring in 1883, such as Krakatoa. The telegraph was in use, and news could have reached the other side of the earth in a matter of days, or maybe weeks. Anyway, I think it's interesting that when the telegraph was introduced shortly before the war between the states, the telegraph was later referred to as Lincoln's Internet. I'd like to end this podcast on a lighter note by talking about a place where it seems that this podcast always has several downloads, Plainfield, Indiana. Plainfield is only 19 miles or 31 kilometers from Indianapolis where I live and has approximately 30,000 people. From the pictures of the town on Wikipedia, it looks very much like some of the rural areas 
with bridges that I like to run, walk on the Indianapolis Monon Trail. So I felt like I was looking at a scene outside my window. Plainfield got its name from the early Quakers who settled around the area and established several meeting houses around the place. The Quakers were also referred to as Plain People, therefore the name Plainfield. The town has an interesting connection to Martin Van Buren. Now, Mr. Van Buren had been President of the United States from 1837 to 1841. During this time, and of course Celebrate Poe will spend a lot of time on the works that Poe wrote during this period, Poe wrote his only novel, the narrative of author Gordon Pym. He also wrote the majority of his stories of terror in Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque. In other words, this was a very productive time for the writer. I think it's interesting that of all of Poe's tales, the writer felt that the man that was used up was, along with the murderers in the Rue Morgue, one of his best stories. We don't hold the man that was used up in such high esteem today, but during Poe's lifetime, he thought it was one of his best. It is said that some readers felt that the story was a political satire of Martin Van Buren because there was an 1840 campaign song beginning Van Van's Used Up Man that ridiculed Martin Van Buren. Uh, when this podcast gets to that, po- uh, that period of Poe's writing career, I want to go over that story in more detail. Now, in Indiana, on what is now U.S. Route 40, Martin Van Buren, this was back, of course, before the highway, Martin Van Buren visited Plainfield in an attempt to encourage people to support him in a second run for the House, for the White House. He spent a weekend in Indianapolis speaking to and meeting people. And then Van Buren headed west to Illinois for more speeches, to shake more hands, and to kiss more babies. On the way, he stopped in Plainfield to do some more campaigning, not realizing that the people in Plainfield wanted to teach the ex-president a lesson. You see, during his term, Van Buren opposed a bill that would have funded improvements to the National Road. The term National Road might sound impressive, but in reality, the National Road wasn't a road as much as a strip of dirt with huge tree stumps and ruts that forced carriage passengers to tie themselves to their seats. Some Plainfield residents decided that Van Buren should go on a rough ride and learn firsthand how badly the road needed repairs. I have a feeling that the road wasn't all that different from the road or roads that the Allens used to reach White Sulphur Springs in their carriage, meaning it really wasn't in that great a shape. Indiana historian Bill Clendeneg writes that the report is of the carriage coming down the hill and gaining speed and gaining speed and then hitting the tree roots here and tipping over. Now try and picture this. At the base of the tree, you have a large mud hole where pigs wallowed. There were just two routes to get around the road, but the driver took the roughest route, knowing definitely that an elm would overturn the carriage and send Van Buren toppling over into the mud. That's an elm tree, causing the ex-vice president or the ex-president to topple over and fall in the mud. Imagine you have all these people dressed out in their finest clothes coming out to see a former president. 
but he's covered with mud and has to first enter the local tavern to clean up. The elm tree became somewhat noted as the Van Buren elm. Apparently the tree is no longer there, but a stone marker was built beside the tree to memorialize the spot. And an elementary, elementary school near the area where the tree was located is named Van Buren Elementary School. I guess it's not every day that an ex-president visits your town to campaign and ends up falling in the town mud hole. Now, sources for this episode include Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography and a History of the American Theater, Volume 1 by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, Edgar Allan Poe by George E. Woodbury from The American Man of Letters, and The Year Without a Summer by William K. Klingman and Nicholas P. Klingman. And be sure to check my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Just click on the episode you want to learn more about to see show notes and a transcript. Join us for the next episode of this podcast, where Mr. Poe and I delve into the year 1816, the year without a summer.